The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number 95 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm Sean Rapier. I am your host, and this is a very special episode. My guest, Mitch Davis, is the director, writer, and producer of the film The Other Side of Heaven, as well as the new film The Other Side of Heaven 2, which is out in theaters now, and you have to get out and see this amazing movie. I want to thank my friend John Dye. Uh, John has been on the show before and is just, I always refer to him as the most connected man in the church. He seems to know everybody. And last week, I got a text out of the blue from John that said, hey, Sean, Mitch, you guys should really get to know each other. And, And I had always wanted to interview Mitch. I just never knew how to get a hold of him. And I said, Mitch, I'm a big fan. We'd love to have you on the show. And Mitch replied and said, hey, how about tomorrow night? Which is incredible because his schedule has just been so busy trying to get this film off the ground. We'll talk about the fireside he did right before we recorded. We ended up recording at 11 o'clock at night. And normally we, you know, on the show, we record for about 45 or 50 minutes And Mitch was so compelling, so interesting. This conversation lasted more than an hour. And so I talked to my wife a bit about it. And and I was uh, going to actually release two episodes today. We were going to release one that was a 40 or 45 minute edit. And then another one that was the full conversation. And uh, I talked to my wife, I talked to uh, my dear friend, Nick Galetti, who is the, the king of podcasting, and said, what do we do? And both of them said, hey, if it's a great conversation, just put on the whole thing. So I decided to just share this this longer version with you, and you are going to absolutely love it. Mitch is an amazing guy, and I'm so grateful for this time that we had to sit down and talk. And this week in my Latter-day Life, I'll share some thoughts about this conversation, as well as what we can all do to share the gospel. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And this week, sitting here right in front of me, here in the Latter-day Live studios, we have a film writer, a director, and an icon in cinema. Mitch Davis is my guest. Mitch, welcome to the show. Mitch Davis, icon. I'm gonna. I want that on my tombstone. <laughs> I want that on my tombstone. That's great. you really are because when our our audience is already going to know because I'm sure I've said it in the introduction who you are. But you have made uh, some amazing film, and one film in particular that we're going to talk about, that a part two is coming out, mm-hmm. and I have so many questions for you about all this. But before we get into all that, let's get to know Mitch Davis. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Wow, I'm the oldest of seven kids uh, raised in Escondido, California. That's North San Diego County. Um, my dad was a high school teacher. My mom was a substitute teacher, an elementary school teacher. We had no money, a lot of love, and a lot of faith. And 
We just lived the gospel, and we're just so blessed because we did. We just had a great time, me and my brothers and sisters and my, my mom and dad, and uh, uh, served a mission in Argentina in 77 to 79. Um, you look way too young to serve a mission in— 77 to 79, before you were born, Sean. No, that's you're, not true. I was born I, in 72. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, so you were in was, kindergarten when I was a mission. Yeah, I'm not that far behind you, though. <laughs> I was, I was uh, well kicking. So I, I know Escondido well, great area. Were mm-hmm. you the typical California kid? You know, I I'd like to say I was. I couldn't really afford to be the typical California kid. I I was no. We had we had a great life. It was a small town then, Escondido. It was like thirteen thousand people when I moved wow, there. Wow, really? Yeah, it was a small agricultural town with avocado trees, uh, citrus orchards everywhere. I remember when the orange blossoms would come in, the whole valley just smelled like orange blossoms. It was really a wonderful place. Uh, it's grown a lot since then. It's still a wonderful place, but it's a different place. Not quite affordable anymore. Ooh, <laughs> no, no. Did you fall in love with filmmaking when you were younger, or did that come later? The film bug didn't bite me, actually, until I had a very specific spiritual experience on my mission in 1979 that made very clear to me that I was supposed to someday make a movie about the Mormon missionary experience, which was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, I First of all, I was on my mission. Secondly, I didn't want to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be a writer, probably a sports writer at the time. And, uh, but boy, uh, it was a very clear, um, directive. Was it really, it wasn't, so it wasn't like something that happened or that you saw. It was really just a message. You're going to make a film about a mission. It was a voicemail. It was a very clear message. Um, someday you will make a movie about what it means to be a Mormon missionary. So, so is this, uh, that's something, this is something that's happened to me probably four times in my life that I remember mm. that, that very specifically I've heard a voice that's given mm. me direction. Mm. Is this something that's common? I mean, everybody receives revelation in, in, in different ways. Mm. Is this something common with you? No, I would say in my life there are three or four moments like this mm. one as well. That's, that is incredible. So now we're all dying to hear you come home from your mission in 79. Did you go back to San Diego area? Actually, I, I had a year at BYU before my mission. Oh, okay. And then I went back to BYU about six months after I got home from Argentina. And, uh, and I reconnected with Michelle. I actually had met my wife. Uh, her brother and I, uh, we shared an office during part of our mission and our desk had a glass top on it and the tradition was that you put photos of your family underneath this desk glass top and uh he walked into the office his first day he saw pictures of my family and so the next day he brought pictures of his and he had a photograph of his little sister standing in front of the hawaii temple with a red hibiscus flower behind his ear and i said who is that and we ended up uh, writing a little bit on my mission, and then after my mission, uh, several months later, reconnected at BYU, and and against her better judgment, she said yes. When I, <laughs> yeah. I, it's one of the themes that I love in 
a lot of our guests is you just see the hand of the Lord mm. guiding you through all that. And I hear that in you. It's amazing. It's really, you know, it, it, I don't want to get too far into the weeds of our love story, but I'll tell you this. I, I, I didn't know her. He was writing her a letter one day and he said, hey, I'm writing my sister a letter. You should put a PS on here. So I put a PS. And so the next time she wrote him a letter, um, she put a little separate note to me and then I wrote her a letter and then she wrote me a letter. And then after only two or three letters, my mission was coming to an end. I got my last transfer to what I knew would be my last area, left her brother behind. And I had a 10 hour bus ride and I was having this melancholy kind of slideshow in my mind about my mission, my life. I just wanted, I wanted to talk to someone about the emotions that I was feeling about finishing my mission. And this is another one of those times where I just kind of felt prompted, right, Michelle? And I was like, I don't even, I hardly know her. And I, and I actually had a, a girl that was kind of waiting for me. And, but I wrote, I wrote Michelle this 10 page letter on this bus about my mission. And when she got the letter, this is true. Uh, when I was writing the letter, I thought, you're going to marry this girl that you don't even know. You really had that thought. I really did. And wow. when she when she read the letter, her mother walked in on her, uh, and she said, what are you reading? She said, oh, it's a letter from Elder Davis. And I have the funniest feeling I'm going to marry this guy. <laughs> and her mother was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but anyway, it, it didn't go smoothly. It wasn't a direct path. There were there were some some zigs and zags in the road, but that ended up happening. And I really, I mean, I can remember very, very vividly how I felt writing her uh, that letter, and and just think I'm on a bus five thousand, six thousand miles from her, and I just kind of felt like she was right there and. She was the one I needed to tell about what I was feeling. That is just an awesome love story. It, it's pretty cool. She thought she had thrown away the 10-page the letter I wrote, but we actually just came across it a few months ago. No way. And it was the sweetest thing to read this letter. Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, and to just remember how innocent and faithful and full of hope and kind of just pure enthusiasm I was, uh, you know, I'm old now. I'm not, I'm not 20 anymore. <laughs> In addition to finding your eternal companion, mm. most important thing, or I guess connecting with her there. Yeah. Did you, did you study film at BYU? So I was an English major. And then I, after my mission, I focused on creative writing, uh, tending towards screenwriting. Uh, and you still knew when you were at BYU, you still had this thought of, I got to yeah. make this film. I that well, I, you. you know, I had this thought. Yeah, my yeah, I awesome. I, I did, and and it. Uh, we made a lot of, yes. Yeah, so we graduated BYU with a lot of student loans. I took a real job for four years to try to pay off our student loans. Got us a nice house, a couple of nice cars, a good life. You say and a real job. Was it what industry was that? I in? was selling computers, selling computer systems to banks. There you go. Um, in San Diego, and uh, <clears throat> starting to get the golden handcuffs. You know, life was getting yep. pretty good, and and I remember all of a sudden this kind of this 
prompting started ringing in my ears and I sat down with my wife one day and I said, hey, honey, um, you know, our life's getting pretty good. And she said, yeah, yeah, it is. Isn't that the idea? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I said, yeah. I said, remember that thing I told you about the movie? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. And by this time, we had two little kids and, uh, and a good life. And I said, I said, well, what do you think? She said, well, um, she said, if you don't do it now, I don't think you ever will. So, yeah, I think we should go for it. What year was this? That would have been about 84, 85. Okay. And... Uh, so then I had to try to figure out how in the world to become a filmmaker because I didn't I, I didn't know anybody I had no connections and no no skills uh, and I figured out that the best way for a guy like me to get somewhere to get connected was to go to film school and there were like four or five film schools in the U.S. that were the top and the number one of all at the time and I think still is was USC I applied to Columbia, NYU, USC, and UCLA, and um, and the only one I got into was USC. Sheesh, that's amazing. Which was really wild. Yeah, USC. Was, I mean, the number of people who have graduated from USC Film School. Yeah. I mean, Hollywood is dotted with it. You yeah. Know? yeah. So, so yeah. Did you moved to Los Angeles. Yeah, so that meant selling our house and selling our cars that worked and buying a couple of cheap cars that didn't work. And and moving to Los Angeles, and we had no, you know, we had no family or friends up there, and uh, so I, 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 here's a crazy thing I did: I created a brochure about our family, and um, and I mailed it to every bishop and stake president that I could get the address for in Los Angeles, and it said the Davis family is looking for a place to live. And then we just begged them, hey, do you have anybody who needs a caregiver? Do you have anybody who has a guest house? Do you have anybody, you know, because we, we, it costs a lot of money to house a family up there. And uh, and we got a couple of phone calls uh, from, one was a bishop in South Central LA who had an elderly woman that had a little, Apartment, and then the other was some people in Glendora, California. D and Reed Alder. He was a doctor, and they had a, a bunch of exotic birds, but they liked to travel. And they had a an amazing, like an eighteen hundred square foot guest house on their property with a pool. And they said, "If you'll watch our birds while we are gone on our trips, we will let you stay here for I can't remember. It was like ten cents." And they made. They made film school possible. They both since passed. And if you watch the special thanks credits of all my movies, every single one, uh, they're in there. They're first position because they gave us a they gave my family a safe place to live for a couple three years mm. while we uh, went back into debt, <laughs> going to USC <laughs> Film School. Yeah, USC Film School, not cheap. Oh, holy cow. No, it's like, I don't know, yeah. 40, 50 grand a year tuition, yeah. and then you're then you're paying for a family to live in Los Angeles. It was very, 
we quickly blew through our savings and started racking up student loan debt. Was there ever a moment in all this that you stopped and thought, what am I doing? Oh, yeah. I I mean, my family, I I had this sweet job selling computers to banks. Oh, yeah. Now I'm living in a guest house racking up debt to this crazy dream of being a filmmaker. No, I'll tell you that. um, So the first semester in USC, they have a few classes that much like in many programs, medical school or the military, they try to wash you out. You know, they, they test you. And uh, and one of the courses, uh, after like three or four weeks, um, we had done a couple of movies. And a lot of the people in the film program, you know, they were Hollywood elites, kids, or they were Harvard MBAs, JD MBAs. They were Yaleys. They were a lot of really bright people with a lot of experience. I didn't know which end of a camera to look through, you know. And so my first couple of movies kind of bombed. So the teachers called me in. You've sold the house. You've moved your family. You sold your cars. You're racking up debt. <laughs> you're taking care of exotic birds where your <laughs> wife is. And they called me in to say, hey, uh, Mitch, you know, we've seen your first two movies and... uh we just think we ought to tell you right now that we're not seeing it. We don't necessarily think you belong here. So if your next movie or two don't turn a corner, we're going to recommend you leave. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to go home and tell my wife that. <laughs> you know, oh. oh, Mitch, I can't even imagine that. No, it was insane. It's got to be so painful. Yeah, that was a very scary couple of weeks. But then, you know, I, but the, it, it, it drove me to my knees and it drove me to a creative place that was good because then I made my next movie was about me getting kicked out of film school. It was about a oh, neurotic okay. artist. It was kind of a Woody Allen neurosis <laughs> thing and they loved it. And oh, all of a sudden, great. I was like the star, you know? Oh, Mitch, that's amazing. Yeah. So you make a ton of contacts. I mean, that's one of the reasons you go to USC Film yeah. School is to yeah. all the contacts that you make. You go through school, you finish, you graduate. Well, so what's next? even before before I finished, like my last semester there, um, I I noticed on a post board that there was a, an, there was a little posting competition for Disney internship and out of I don't know a couple hundred applicants USC sent five people's applications over to Disney Disney interviewed two out of the five I got to be one of them and when I walked into my interview the other guy who was there was a Mormon return missionary with two kids. <laughs> no way. Who, really? He was in the writing. Mitch, that's amazing. No, his name, and he's, he may be listening. His name was Carter Birch. I remember, because I, I never saw him before or after. He was in a different program. I was in the directing program. He was in the writing programs, and never the twain <laughs> shall meet. But yeah, we're, we're sitting there in the lobby waiting to be interviewed. And I'm like, are you serious? Are you serious? Uh, the, the two of us. Yeah, but anyway, we both got interviewed. Somehow I got the gig, and I had no idea what the job was. I just knew it was on the Disney lot. The first day I walked up, I walked down the hall to the secretary's office, where I was, and I said, hey, I'm Mitch Davis. Oh, you're the new intern. I said, yeah. She said, yeah, there's a meeting in that conference room right over there. You're supposed to be in there. Just head in there. 
So I opened the door to this conference room, and it's like, I don't know, 12, 14 guys in there. At the head of the table is Jeffrey Katzenberg. And 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 he kind of looks at me and just kind of points, and I just sit down. And then, then he stops the meeting to take a phone call from Michael Eisner. And I look around, and I realize that my internship was like I was part of what was called the creative group, the in-house producers who who develop movies and decide what movies are going to get made at Disney with Katzenberg and Eisner. I like, are you kidding me? I mean, I, it was such a surreal thing. And, uh, and was I had Katzenberg an office. Was still president at the time? Was yeah, he, he was, yeah, he was president. And so Eisner you're walking was, in on a meeting with the president of Disney. Yeah. Yeah. My office was a few doors down from Katzenberg and Eisner and, and I'm, I'm walking in on this meeting and, and they're handing me scripts to read, you know. Your my, your wife must have felt much better about things by then. Not really, because they still were only paying me ten cents. So yeah. they 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 no. She she was she was there's because at least a path right. Yeah, there's I mean, a path. Hey, I, I hung out with the president of Disney today. Yeah, yeah. it's not bad. No, well, I, let me. It it gets even better. So so there was a writer's strike going on at the time, and. Uh, so that was a meeting in the morning. And then all afternoon, Katzenberg was in closed doors meetings with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen and other people trying to figure out a way out of this writer's strike. So they were down the hall from me. And, and so later on that day, somebody called in a bomb threat. One of the writers called in a bomb threat to the executive offices. So we all got evacuated. And we got evacuated through Jeffrey Katzenberg's office. So Jeffrey Katzenberg and Steven Spielberg were holding the doors open <laughs> for us to to. It was just like no, it was it was oh, it was cool. surreal. It was surreal. Yeah, I would guess so. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So did uh, did the internship end up leading to a job at Disney? Yeah, I was only there like four weeks, and they said, "Hey, we want to we want to hire you." And I said, "Wow, that's amazing. That's sure. incredible." Yeah. So yeah. what was your job at Disney? I was what's called a creative executive, which is uh, an oxymoron. <laughs> but uh, no, I was I was a junior creative executive, which meant that I I read scripts and wrote coverage and and took pitch meetings um, and you know attended all these creative creative group meetings where we where we decided which films deciding to, what films are going to be made to green light yeah i mean it was it was again i had no business being there how long were you at disney just a couple of years yeah yeah and then what were some of the projects you worked on while at disney so the first project i ever got put on was a project called rocketeer by the way i have to just say i told you before i love rocketeer so much i still remember my date who my date was i remember the theater i saw rocketeer at mm. that was Jennifer Connelly, who was yeah. a very young actress at the time. Yeah. What a great film. That is a fun, entertaining film. They're remaking it. Are they really? Brigham Taylor, who was one of the guys who replaced me when I left, another LDS guy. Uh, Brigham Taylor is developing uh, Rocketeer the Update. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Such a fun period piece. Yeah. Just cool no, it's, movie. It's a great movie that doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and what else did you work on? 
I, at about the same time I got stuck on Rocketeer, I was assigned to Dead Poet Society, but that was already in post-production. All I really did was watch the dailies and just took notes and if there were any things that they missed or whatever. Actually, Newsies was a project that was pitched to me and another executive named Donald DeLine. We were the two guys that took the pitch and we made the buy recommendation. Uh, I then I left Disney before that movie got made, so I don't. But you were involved in the process of greenlighting yeah, it, yeah. Which yeah. that is a film that maybe wasn't as appreciated when it came out as it is now. Now it's like it's it is really a big deal. I mean, my there's sons such a, and all their friends, like all of them, it's one yeah, of their favorite. It's films. been on Broadway and yeah. and uh, gave Christian Bale a bit of a bounce career wise. You bet. Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, so that those are a few. I worked on another project called White Fang, and yeah, yeah. And so your time wraps up at Disney. What what caused you to leave Disney? So uh, so uh, when I was an intern, I was making a hundred bucks a week, and when they hired me full time, they said, "Hey, um, we're going to give you a big raise. You're going to be making four hundred bucks a week." <laughs> and I was working about eighty hours a week at the time. That's five bucks an hour. Um, and uh, and and they kept giving me raises, but they just didn't quite understand my reality. Just about everybody who worked there was single, or uh, or maybe married with a spouse who was making a great living, but nobody had kids. And I just kept going to them saying, "Guys, I know you think I'm kidding, <laughs> but I really can't afford to keep working here." And uh, and so 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 I got offered a really nice uh, nice job at Columbia Studios, which was a much more sane life. And also, I was able there to start writing again and actually trying to become a filmmaker. I never wanted to be a producer, or studio executive. That wasn't mm. my plan. Interesting. How yeah. long were you at Columbia? A couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had like a six it's not like I was there forever, you know, between film school and Disney and Columbia, it was like six years of doing battle with Los Angeles and Hollywood. And, and then, then you were done with the, the, the big studios at that point, you walked away. What, yeah. What came next? So I started writing, I started writing scripts at night while at Columbia and I sold one and the company I sold it to, I made a deal with them that I would give it to them at a discount if they would allow me to direct it. Mm -hmm. I wanted, I was trying to, you know, get to my my dream of becoming the the director producer who would make this LDS yeah. missionary movie, um, and and so th so that th that was your first directorial picture. Yeah, yeah, sort of, kind of. It was a little movie called Windrunner, and um, mm. and I and it was uh, it, it ended up being released by the Disney Channel and on Warner Home Video, and. Uh, but that was a, a a bit of a failure in a way. I I I only got to direct the first half of it, and then I got into a tiff with the producers, uh, or they got into a tiff with me, or however you want to look at it. They they ended up replacing me with somebody else for the last uh, mm. half of production. The film ended up being very successful, and a and a big hit for the for the producers, but it didn't, it did not launch me. I, I, the plan was Disney Columbia directorial debut and never look back. The night I got fired off that movie, I was in Kanab, Utah, walking around the parking lot again, trying to figure out how I was going to go home and tell my wife, 
Uh, I know we took all the kids out of school. We all moved to Kanab. Uh, and we had some people house sitting for us. We'd made them a four month commitment that they got. The, and I had to go back and tell her, Oh, by the way, uh, I just got canned. We're not getting paid anymore. And we got to kick those people out of our house. Oh, so, Mitch. so yeah, it was a, th- that was, you know, so there have been a few moments of yeah. sheer terror. So and, where did that uh, take you next? So what happened was I went back, uh, to Colorado and, Shortly thereafter, got called to be the, a bishop, and um, that coupled with, I, I I didn't feel at that time that there's nothing that is not conducive to, to being a worthy Latter Day Saint or a bishop about filmmaking, but there is something really time and energy consuming about being an independent filmmaker that I thought was incompatible with being a bishop. So I actually left the movie business for five years while I, while I was a bishop there and just took a regular job, regular sales job again, selling electronics. And uh, we had five great years in Colorado. And then, uh, but again, started making money, Started having a good life, a lot of security. The golden handcuffs are coming back. They're coming on. back. They're coming back. And and then I learned that I was going to be released as bishop. And my time was coming to an end. And I, about two weeks before I was released, I already knew it was happening. I remember having another conversation with my wife. Hey, honey, remember that? <laughs> and she just like rolled her eyes. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but then she said again, she almost the same thing she said the first time. She said, if you don't do it now, you never will. I think we should go for it. And so and here's the thing. I didn't have any idea what this movie was. I knew I was supposed to make a movie about a Mormon missionary experience. But I didn't know what that experience was. I assumed it was maybe my own missionary experience. So I quit my job. We put a second mortgage on the house, a line of credit, and I started to write. And I wrote, uh, I wrote a, a screenplay about my mission called Weak Things, and uh, and submitted it to a general authority friend of mine. Said, "Hey, I, you know, you know, I told you that I wanted to do this. Well, here's here's my script. What do you think?" And he read it, and he was very kind. And he said, "He said, yeah, it's good, it's good." And I said, "Well." Um, yeah, so should I make it? He said, oh, yeah, you could make it. And I said, no, no, that's not what I asked. Should I make this movie? And he said, ah, you could make it. And he was sort of noncommittal, and I took that as a no. <laughs> so <laughs> so I went back home, and um, I'd had, I had two friends previously who knew I wanted to make a movie about the more missionary experience who had recommended a book that Elder John H. Groberg had written about his mission to Tonga. And I had ignored both of them. I just flatly, just a general authorities book, come on, it's going to be platitudes and lessons and morals of the story. And But then a third friend, a neighbor, who'd been my counselor in the bishopric, Carrie Lacatour, he said the same thing. He said, hey, you should read this book. It's, it's beautiful and you'd love to, this would be a great movie. And I just, and I started to say no. And he, went to his library, grabbed his personal copy, stuck it in my chest and said, just shut up and read this. And, and 
And so I was kind of surprised, and I took it, and and I read it that night. I started to read it, and I was like 10, 15 pages at the most into it, and I just, uh, I, I was home. I mean, I just, I knew, I knew this was the movie, and I knew it was going to happen. I had no idea how, but... I mean, from that moment forward, it was like two years of, two and a half years of just no looking back, you know. So how do you start that process? Once you finished reading the book, did you try to reach out to Elder Groberg? Yeah, so uh, before I even finished reading the book, I, I called the publisher, Bookcraft, and said, hey, I want to buy the movie rights to Elder Groberg's book. And there was this long pause, like, because back then there had never been there there had been no Richard Dutcher, there had been no God's Army, no Brigham City, nothing. Nobody had ever made a film about an LDS missionary. And uh once he figured out I was serious, he said, Well, we have the movie rights, but we wouldn't want to do anything unless Elder Groberg is okay with it. Would you be okay to meet with him? I said, Sure. So I they scheduled a meeting and I met with Elder Groberg and He's such a dear, sweet man. We had a beautiful prayer together, a beautiful visit. He asked me a lot of pointed questions. And and then he said, okay. He said, well, I feel really good about this. I really feel this is the right thing to do. However, you're going to have to talk my wife into it. (laughs) He said, would you be willing to come up to my house in a couple of days? And I said, sure. So he just said, my wife, Jean, is a very private person and uh, doesn't like the limelight, and she's really, really apprehensive about mm. this. So would you please come? So I went up to the house and met with him and his wife, Jean, and it took a few visits. This person they've never met is coming in and saying, I'm going to make a movie about you. <laughs> it was quite a process. Uh, no doubt. We, we have... Uh listeners, a good listener base who are not members of the church. Mm-hmm. Can we get a quick background when we talk about Elder Groberg, kind of just quickly who he is? And, yeah. And I mean, there's a good chunk of the story coming up in the movie. Yeah. But just who is he? Yeah. And so, who is he to our church, I guess? Yeah. John H. Groberg was uh, uh, a, a good, bright, uh, righteous young man growing up in Idaho Falls, Idaho, when, like many members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he was called to be a missionary. And he was sent from the high desert of Idaho Falls, Idaho, to the South Pacific Islands of Tonga in 1954. He was 19 at the time. And he had some just amazing adventures that forever changed him. He encountered people with a kind of love and faith and and priority system entirely different than what he was used to. And it changed him forever. Um, that was what the first movie was about. It was about yeah. a book he wrote about his experiences 1954 to 57. He almost died a few different times, a few different ways. Just a beautiful, beautiful book about those experiences then only nine years later he was called to return with his wife and then five young daughters to tonga to preside over the same mission to preside over 200 missionaries three countries five languages 200 islands 
or a hundred islands. Anyway, so and that's what the second movie's about. It's about when he returns with his wife and children. Uh, then after he returned from being a mission president at the ripe old age of thirty-one. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so he served with. Uh, the youngest apostle at the time, Thomas S. Monson, yeah. was the supervising apostle over the South Pacific. So they, you know, he and Apostle Elder Monson, they they traveled the islands together and had a lot of similar adventures and some tragedies and some real faith, yeah. faith uh, promoting and faith trying experiences. So then after that, Elder Grover became a general authority of the church, which is leadership in our church. Yeah, yep. he presided over a, a large portion of the South Pacific from offices in Hawaii and elsewhere. And uh, and then he was called to serve as a 70, uh, which is a high-level general authority position and in, in the presidency of the Quorum of the 70. And he served missions in Hong Kong, in Mongolia, in Argentina. Uh, yeah, he's, he's spent a large period of his life... Yeah. Uh, Preaching the gospel everywhere. Service, yeah. In lots of languages. Awesome. That's a great overview as to who he is. And that's why the, the story is so important to be told. So you end up getting the rights to this. Was there this moment of, okay, I've got the rights. Now what? I mean, you know a lot about yeah. how movies are made, but no, still. No, I, I mean, you don't, you know. Where, I what's was, the next step, Mitch? I, I, people kept asking me, what are you doing? And I just kept saying, I'm being led forth by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. I mean, I didn't. I had for a great scripture. I had never, yeah. I had never started a business. I had never run a company. I'd always just been an employee, uh, you know, working for somebody else. Um, but yeah, I created an LLC. I uh, got a great lawyer who helped me create subscription documents. I started trying to raise money. I never raised money. I never raised a nickel before in my life. I was the son of a high school teacher, you know? I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I was supposed to do this. And and there was no... I, I, I don't want it to sound arrogant because that's not the way I intended it. I just mean that I know, I knew God wanted this done. Yeah. And there was no stopping me. I mean, I wasn't at all, though. When you know I, the Lord's will, no, it just, I just couldn't. I, I mean, there was stopping me. I mean, it didn't happen until Heavenly Father opened the windows of heaven. But, but I, but I wasn't going to quit. It was at once a terrifying and uh, a remarkable experience. Did people like investors? Did they get excited right away? Did people see the vision of it? Um. I wouldn't say right away. I mean, it took me a year and a half. It took me a year and a half to raise the money. And uh, Were you doing other work throughout all this? No, I was running up my credit cards. This and is it, full time. This is it, full You're time. You're living the dream. I, I, uh, no, I'm using, wow. using my own credit cards to fly around the country and meet with rich people who didn't have any reason to meet with me other than the fact that I had this vision. And uh, we, yeah, we, we held cottage meetings. and uh, but But again, at the time, there had been no, there had been no LDS themed yeah. film for since the Brigham Young movie in 1944 or whatever that was. I mean, there just wasn't. Yeah, this right. was a, an unheard of concept. But I had a lot of support. I yeah. had Jerry Malone, the producer of Schindler's List and Jurassic Park, an Academy Award winning producer. He had 
joined himself to the project. A guy named John Garbett had joined himself to the project, uh, who was a producer at Disney. Uh, and, and, and so I had, I had good arms around me, but still we were trying to do something that had never been done. And there was no, there was no track record. You couldn't point yeah. and say, see, we're going to be just like this movie. So, so we had a lot of meetings. We created a lot of budgets and we just decided that we'd find a way to make the film for $7 million at the time, which is almost $11 million today that it would be big enough, but also small enough. Yeah. And we tried to right size the movie and, uh, and I, yeah, I, I flew all over the South Pacific looking, I looking at locations and we figured out that we could make it in a place called the Cook Islands, which is a protectorate of New Zealand. Our entire crew, uh, except for I think one, uh, came out of New Zealand. They uh, had all been working on a big, big film called Vertical Limit. I think it was a, was that a Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone. Stallone film, action yeah, film down sure. there in the Alps, the, uh, the Kiwi Alps. And then our, our DP came from uh, shooting a Russell Crowe film in Australia, Brian Brainy. So we had an amazing crew f- uh, we really had the best crew we could have possibly had from awesome. in the Southern Hemisphere. They were fantastic. And uh, and we brought most of our actors out of New Zealand, or we got a lot of them on island. In We did it on an island called Rarotonga, one of the Cook Islands. And uh, so we had Kiwi actors, we had a few American actors, and we had a number of local actors. Tell us who uh, you ended up casting for uh, for Elder Groberg. Oh, Elder Groberg, Christopher Gorham. Elder Groberg is such a uniquely sweet, humble, dear man that I kept waiting to see somebody who had light in their eyes, who had a softness and a tenderness like Elder Groberg does. And when he walked in, uh, I mean, before he even started to read the lines, I just, that's the guy. <laughs> That's the guy because he's just a dear, sweet, good man, yeah. and you can't fake that. And then tell us who you cast to play his wife. Oh, there was this little this actress, little unknown actress, this little unknown actress named Anne Hathaway. Did she ever make anything of herself? No, she turned out okay. <laughs> so all this time we had Chris Gorham and we had the other supporting roles filled, but we didn't have the Gene Groberg role filled, and and. And and the 10 days that we were going to film her were all going to be at the very end of the schedule in New Zealand. So we kept we kept making offers, and we kept making offers to name actresses of the time. And, uh, and we kept getting no and no and no, and we couldn't figure out. Uh, but this, here's the true story. I had a stack of, uh, stack of headshots on my desk and my son Christian who was 17 18 18 at the time walked in he was just looking through me and he pulled out hers and he said dad you should cast her (laughs) really and and I said why he said because I think she's cute and (laughs) and so so I I looked at her tape and she'd been on a tv series for Fox a short-lived tv series and she was really good Really, really, really yeah, good. Yeah, she's very talented. And uh, so, yeah, so we made her an offer. Uh, but, I mean, this was like two weeks before we had to be in New Zealand shooting with her. We finally got her. She showed up. I'd never met her. I'd just seen her on tape, talked to her on the phone. 
she showed up in New Zealand and her brother was her chaperone. The three of us went to dinner. And after dinner, she was just a delightful girl. I said, hey, so do you have anything else going on? She said, well, maybe. I said, what do you mean by the maybe? She said, I auditioned. I had a really good audition during my layover in Los Angeles on my way here. But I'm kind of superstitious, so I'm not going to talk about it unless I get it. I said, come on, you got to tell me. She said, no, no, I, I'm not unless I get it. So, well, it turns out that was she stopped and auditioned for Gary Marshall for The Princess, Princess Diaries. Diaries, wow. And, uh, and two days later, she comes bouncing onto the set. Mr. Davis, Mr. Davis, I got the part, I got the part. I said, oh, yeah, well, now can you tell me about it? She said, yeah. It's this little movie with <laughs> Gary Marshall and Julie Andrews and Hector oh, Elizondo, and I and I just I I just stopped. I said, "Do you realize what just happened to you?" And she said, "No, what?" And I said, "You you just became a movie star." And and then I said, "Tonight uh, we're gonna have a talk." <laughs> so at the end of work, I made her sit in the cafeteria with me, and I gave her a big, you know, a bishop speech about about not losing her not losing herself in the malaise of Hollywood. Awesome. Yeah. So That's she great. she was fantastic. She what a doll. What how, a doll. How was filming? On that movie? Yeah. That movie was the biggest best schedule I've ever had. It still wasn't enough. It's never enough. Um but it it was it was my so Except for my first film, which I got fired off of, it was really my directorial debut, yeah. and it and I, you know, I wrote, directed, and exec produced it. So it was kind of my baby, and it was really hard but really good. It was terrifying, and uh, but gratifying. There were yeah. a lot of spiritual, a lot of beautiful spiritual experiences on the set. So you finished shooting this film. Now you've got a $7 million budget film on your hands. Hmm. What happens from there? You start... Had you secured distribution before? No. No. We no. Made, we made the movie Naked, Naked, Naked. Um, yeah. Um, that's the highest risk way to make an independent film, and it's also the highest reward. If you, if you get partnership up front, you usually sell your movie at a discount, but at least you have the security of knowing that you've sold it. Um, plus, nobody in the world was going to buy a movie <laughs> about a Mormon missionary in Tonga in 1954 until it was done. You know? Yeah, you'd have to see it. We didn't, ha we didn't have Brad Pitt in our movie. We didn't have well, Tom Cruise. It, but even you just explaining it now, me being a member of the church, hearing Mormon missionary in Tonga in the 1950s, yeah. I, I'm not going to watch that. Let's see, it's a period <laughs> film, and it's inspiring. And it's, it's a religious film. And, and, and General Authority wrote the book. And, yeah, Deseret Book, have you heard of them? No, no, yeah. It ticks all the boxes, Mitch. <laughs> So you come back with this amazing film. What happens next? We start shopping it. We showed it to a lot of people. And then we got one guy who loved the film. His name was Dick Cook. He was the president or CEO at the time of Walt Disney Pictures. And uh, and I had known him when I worked when I worked at Disney. So he said, Let let us take uh DVD. He said, we could, he said, I'll take theatrical if you want it. 
but he said, you'll never make a nickel because our overhead is so bad that you'll be underwater and you'll never get out of there. So he said, he said I'd rather just advise you on the theatrical and we'll take DVD. And that's what ended up happening. Yeah, they took the distribution rights. Yeah. Who did the distribution for film? It was uh, it was a company called Excel Entertainment, yeah. which has now been acquired by Deseret Book, a guy named Jeff Simpson at the time. Dean Hale was working with him. They had they had just gotten done distributing God's Army, um, or working with Richard Dutcher on that film, and and they had quite an appetite for this film, and they pursued us. Uh, they pursued us for over a year because we were still really intent. We wanted to get that big studio deal, yep. and uh, but then we ended up partnering with them, and it was a great experience. How satisfying was it seeing it up on the screen? Um, there's nothing quite like it. There's nothing quite as terrifying and nothing quite as gratifying as you know when you hear an audience laugh or cry or sigh. Uh, especially for me when you feel the audience feeling the spirit of the Lord. Mm. That's just fantastic. That's a film with legs. It is still, no, you talk to still people out there. about that movie. It's like, that's one of those family classics. Yeah. I was telling you earlier, my family watched it today, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they were so excited that you were coming over to the house. Mm. But uh, how, I mean, how has the response been with it living on? It's it's been amazing to me and and kind of haunting in a way. It would have been easier for me if it had just kind of lived and died. But it just keeps living and that creates for me an enormous sense of responsibility about the second film. Yeah. Having seen this movie live a 20-year lifespan so far and go through all the world. I mean everywhere uh it was pirated all over china back before china had any kind of an open door policy to mm. our content it was it was pirated all over africa uh and it was sold into theaters and on tv uh and in dvd form a lot of places it's still available on video on demand it went into every muslim uh film territory in the world, I think, wow. either every or almost every. Um, it was on Sky TV in Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Qatar and Iraq, <laughs> <laughs> Afghanistan. I mean, what? Here and, you are responsible for sharing the gospel. Truly. I mean, this is a lot of people's first view as to what our church is. Yeah, well... I, I, that was our intent. Our intent was to be entertaining and then to have people all of a sudden feel the spirit. You know, my, my younger brother who worked with me at the time, Randy, he said to me, he said, Mitch, do you realize what's going to happen? Joe Sixpack, the truck driver, is going to turn on the TV in the Motel 6. He's going to see your movie and he's going to feel something. <laughs> and it's going to, I just think, it, yeah, the the qualitative difference between someone having a defensive, closed posture, arms folded, legs crossed, gruff expression on their face versus a guy with a piece of pizza and a root beer or maybe a beer, uh, you know, with a pillow prop behind his head saying, oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, yeah, Anne Hathaway. I'll watch this. 
the difference between having a Disney brand on your movie, yeah, a movie star. I mean, it's it's that plus the fact that hundreds of millions of people got to see that movie. Yeah, I mean it, whether in pirated form or in legitimate distribution, it's been everywhere, and, and I and it continues to live on. Oh, and and that and that kills me because. I can't imagine that not happening with the second film. I just feel like it did so much good. I mean, we know it did good because Elder Groberg and his wife and I and Jerry and John, we get emails, we get letters. Yeah. And it's just like, that really happened? All this from this message as you're walking down the street in yeah. Argentina. Yeah, that's that's the thing. So that's that, the thing. Did that feel like check i'm done and i can do something else or was that okay let's let's go on what where did you go after the other side of heaven um i went into a padded room and <laughs> decompressed i'm sure i can only it was imagine. a it was a you know by the time we finished supporting the distribution and the foreign distribution efforts but from you know from the time we started Raising money, writing the script, the time I, I kind of could hand off foreign distribution, et cetera. It was like a four-year, five-year journey, really. So I took, a, I took a little while to just kind of gather myself and, uh, and work, you know, reacquaint myself with my wife and children. <laughs> and, uh, and then I made a movie in 2007 in Israel called Language of the Enemy, which was my effort to uh, to to solve single-handedly with one movie the Middle Eastern crisis. I made Romeo and Juliet in Jerusalem with a an American Jewish man falling in love with a Palestinian Christian woman whose grandfather is a devout Muslim. That was oh seven, two oh seven, yeah, two thousand seven, yeah. and then I kind of. I kind of took another break. I did some writing. I've written a few things that other people have produced and directed. And uh, and then in, when was it? 2013. Yeah, 2013. I made um, a movie in Bulgaria called Christmas Eve. It was a Patrick Stewart film. Mm. A Christmas, kind of a Christmas dramedy about six different groups of uh New Yorkers who get stuck inside elevators overnight on Christmas Eve. And then I just a couple of years ago I did a movie called The Stray. And The Stray was a very personal film. That was too personal. Yeah. It was a movie about us. And this is another example actually so yeah it's kind of the second movie in a row that somebody else somebody else wrote the first draft. Um and it was my son Parker. Parker Davis was uh BYU film student at the time. That was a great experience. That Is it hard was... to watch being so personal? Um not really. No, it's really uh it's hard to watch the lightning sequence itself because that was a harrowing experience and a and a spiritual experience or very well, it's just thirty thousand foot view of it. What was the experience itself? Um I went on a hike in the Colorado Rockies with my 10-year-old son, Christian, two of his friends, Clark Lockatour and Justin Smith, and our our wonder dog, Pluto. 
and uh, we got, it was July, I think it was mid-July, and it started the snow on us. And so I got worried we were going to get stuck in a freak blizzard. I pitched the tent, put the boys inside it, started fixing them some hot chocolate, and we got hit by lightning inside the tent. And I took the direct hit, um, and and the bulk of the lightning went through me into the dog who was right behind me on the ground. He grounded the strike. He probably took 95% of it into the ground and was killed instantly. Um, then the other 5% shot out of my right arm into the boys next to me, and I was I was knocked out. And according to some of the boys, or according to the boys, I I was I was dead. <laughs> I was gone for a while. They were one of them was knocked out briefly, but the other but came right back. They had some minor burns and some minor injuries. I had a pretty significant uh, neurological deficit and uh, had an eardrum blown out and uh, and had a near death experience and. Uh, uh had had an opportunity to make a decision to live to not die but yeah it was a, it was an amazing um cosmic and spiritual experience um that uh that we made we made a movie about yeah and the i mean the odds yeah you know the odds of being struck by lightning yeah and then the odds of surviving yeah. Incredible. No, it was really, um, once I fully fathomed what had happened to me, um, and once I finally got all the boys to calm down and go to sleep, I just laid there and I just kept saying over and over, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I took a direct hit and to you the stayed chest. Up there. I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I was paralyzed. Um, I couldn't move my, I could, I could, I could move my head and I could kind of move my, I could feel my torso, but I couldn't feel or move my arms or legs. So, so I, I couldn't, I, I had, we had to stay up there, but I figured I started, I was starting to get a little tingling in my fingers and toes. So I thought maybe by the morning I'd be able to walk. And so, yeah, we spent, I just, we said a lot of prayers. I got the boys to calm down and go to sleep. And, and then in the morning, we were able to hike out. Mitch, that was one of the most incredible stories, like um, amongst all these stories. Yeah. You know, you've had such an extraordinary life. Hmm. The movie The Stray comes out, gets great reviews. Everybody loves yeah. it. Yeah. When in this process comes up the idea to do a part two hmm. to the other side of heaven? So the there was... There was an immediate clamor to do the sequel back in 2001, right after the first movie came out. It was, it was quite successful, and I, I politely declined. I, I said no. I, I, the first one was good. It holds up. It looks like studio level Hollywood entertainment. I'm not going to make a cheap version just to make a dollar, and. Uh, and they came back, and they came back, and they came back, and I and and they actually asked. They said, "Well, can we give it to somebody else then?" I said, "Yeah, I don't care." Yeah, <laughs> I really didn't have any. I, I I really felt like we did the first one right, 
But then Elder, Elder Groberg started to talk to me, and, and that was because President Monson was talking to him. President Monson is the reason Elder Groberg wrote the two books about his time in Tonga, first as a missionary and then as a mission president. Uh, then Elder Monson insisted that he write those books. And after he saw the movies, after he saw the movie about the first book, he was he was he really liked it, and he just kept saying, "John, when's that second movie going to get made? When's it going to get made?" And so then Elder Groberg, you know, f- rightfully so, felt a sort of obligation to deliver. And so then he would come to me, and I, he, he, I remember one time he said to me, "You know, President Mon- Monson, he is the prophet," <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just. But I just didn't feel it. I did not feel it. And then President Monson passed. And shortly thereafter, Elder Groberg invited my wife and I up for lunch with him and his wife, Jean. And we had a nice bowl of soup together. And and then uh, he put down his utensils and kind of got a serious look on his face. And I thought, oh, no. And he said, now, Mitch, um, I sort of wondered after he passed if... President Monson would become less insistent about <laughs> the need for there to be a movie about the second book. He said it's exactly the opposite. If anything, he's more uh, insistent now than he ever was when he was alive that that we need to do this. And then he said, it's time. I'm not getting any younger and neither are you. We got to do this. And and that was about two years ago. It was an electric moment. And I, I said, yeah, well, I said, we, we don't have any money. He said, doesn't matter. I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? He said, how much do you need to do the job right? And I loved that he said to do the job right. Because yeah. what he was saying is that he understood he didn't, we didn't want to do a, a, a cheap, cheap, movie, cheap yeah. imitation. And I, I came up with a pretty big number. He said, okay. And I said, what do you mean? Okay, he said. He said, "We'll get it." I said, "Well, yeah, but how?" He said, "I don't know." <laughs> and I said, "Well, yeah, but if you don't know," and he said, and then he kind of got stern and he said, "You are to proceed from this moment forward as if you had all that money in the bank." And I said, "But I don't." <laughs> he said, "He <laughs> said it's hard to proceed, yeah, as if, <laughs> yeah, yeah." But anyway, it was a tr- an extraordinary lesson in faith because he he had a vision, and he and and, and at that moment, uh, the same fire that had been under me for the first film returned. Mm. Uh, I I I knew he would I. I felt the confirmation that everything he was saying was true. So, yeah, that was two years ago, and I've been seven days a week, 18 hours a day ever since, <laughs> trying to make it happen. What was it like when you first reached out to Christopher Gorham? You know, um, uh, at first he said no. Uh, he said, I said, you know, I, I did the first film, Everybody thinks I'm a Mormon. Then I did Sally Carmichael. Now they really think I'm a Mormon. <laughs> so I, I, I can't play a Mormon a third time. And uh, maybe Christopher Gorham should just get the message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Join us. It's easier. That's right. That's right. 
No, but he. So at first, at first it was a no, and 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 we just maintained. I, I love him as a brother, and uh, we just kind of maintained a dialogue. And then, uh, I I think a few things that he had planned fell through, mm. and he called me up and he said, he said, Mitch. I don't know how to tell you this, but I think God must really, really want me to play Elder Grover one more time <laughs> because because the way everything's shaken out, you know, I, I he said I'm in, and uh, and that was that was such a blessing. Wow! Because he he inhabits that role. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so. Tell us how you found the actor who plays President Monson. Holy cow. Yeah, Russell Dixon. Um, just got lucky. I mean, we casted, in this, in this film, we casted one actor from the U.S., Chris Gorham. Everybody else is from New Zealand or Fiji. And our New Zealand casting director, Christina Asher, sent me a bunch of headshots, that's what they call them, just you know, photographs of a bunch of actors for the Elder Monson role. And this one, I just, as soon as I saw it, I said, who is that guy? He is Thomas S. Monson. <laughs> and, and so we got down there a couple weeks later to, to do our casting sessions. We had two days of casting, you know, 12 hour days. And I saw that he wasn't on the list for either days. She said, oh, oh, well, uh, yeah, he's not scheduled. I said, why not? She said, well, these other actors have a lot more film experience. I said, I don't care. <laughs> I said, I want to see him tomorrow before I leave. She said, you're serious? I said, yeah. I really." So, yeah, he came in, just a lovely man, a great actor, and just a fine human being. And, he, uh, I I have not seen the film yet. Yeah, I watched the preview yeah. a few weeks ago when it first came out. Yeah, and the first scene that shows him. Yeah, I got so emotional. Yeah, I really did. I think we all have that connection to President mm -hmm. Monson mm -hmm. that it, to see him again, yeah. alive and young. Yeah, but this actor, not just does he look like him. It's a quick blip on the trailer. Yeah, the mannerisms, just it is president monster yeah no it, it is what a gift it is he he and after he got the part he studied him he watched general conference tapes he watched interviews mm. he watched you know there's a bunch of president monson mashups on youtube whatever he watched it all and we, you know we get on my set and we finished we finished shooting this one scene for, it was a mission conference where he's speaking to the missionaries and then he kind of looks at the camera and says would you like to see me wiggle my ears? <laughs> Just like what? Oh, yeah, amazing. and he could wiggle. He could wiggle his ears. He did the other uh, once and ear wiggle. Anyway, no, he's incredible. a great guy. Great guy. So now the film is done, and no. this week you are kicking. Well, tell us where you just came from. So, uh, like literally tonight, right? Now. Well, yeah, tonight. <laughs> tonight we did a fireside with uh, three Tongan steaks in. The Salt Lake Valley, uh, Elder Groberg and I spoke, and there were, I don't know, 1,500, a couple thousand people there. Uh, it was full. It was a state conference, and boy, do they love Kolipoki. And uh, boy, does he love that. And when, when he starts to preach in Tongan, 
he loses about 50 years and mm. 60 years. He's just a 20, 30 year old guy again. Awesome. And, uh, it was fantastic. And, and, uh, and uh, so that was that was amazing. That was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And he made an interesting comment. He said, "You, he said, you are probably all the grandchildren and great grandchildren of the people that I taught when I was a missionary in Tonga." He said, but, "So I know where you come from, and and you come, you have a a rich heritage, and it was it was really beautiful." And uh, but then, but the cooler, even not cooler, but also cool. Thursday of last week, we uh, showed the movie at the Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, mm. to a bunch of uh, to a number of evangelical ministers as well as Catholic priests and uh, Methodist ministers, and uh, and that was really that was that was really a great experience. They loved the film. Uh, the guy who was kind of leading the discussion afterwards, he said, he said. This movie is a feast for the eyes, as well as for the heart. Uh, he was he was very moved by it, and uh, and so that was Thursday. Tonight we did the fireside. So now our audience is now chomping at the bit to see your film. Yeah, what's yeah. Uh, what's the best way for them to find so it? our our movie is our movie opened now that we're in the past tense. Our movie opened last week nationwide on 200 screens, which is awesome. a huge deal. That's a big, it's, big opening. Yeah, it's, it's a big that opening. Awesome. It's a big expenditure of money. Why did we do that? Well, because everybody outside of Utah, Idaho, Mesa, Arizona is really sick and tired of the fact that they don't get to see these movies. You know, if at all, they get to see them on DVD or or whatever, and and Ella Groberg was committed. This movie needs to go to all the world. So, so that starts off with them being in all of the U.S. And if we do well enough in U.S. theaters, we will be given, like we were with the first film, a free pass to the planet to to do what the first movie did, which is spend twenty years or more going into Muslim territories in China, and you know. So that's what we, I, I'm so, I mean, if this comes out on Monday, the 1st of July, it'll still be in all these theaters until at least Wednesday night, the 3rd or the 4th. And then in some areas where it didn't perform as well, it'll be gone uh, and it won't come back. But I think it's going to be in a lot of places for two or three weeks and it's going to be in, you know, Utah and Mesa, Arizona, Idaho Falls for hopefully months. Yeah, so, so do not put off seeing this film. Do not. Do Go not. and see it. Make it a family home evening. Grab some families from yeah. your ward. Go out and see this movie. The best way for them to find the nearest theater is there a, a website listing, or is it better that they just go to like a Fandango? No, they they should go to othersideofheavenmovie.com. Other, other side, side of, of heavenmovie.com. Other side of heavenmovie.com. Or they can just Google, you know, other side of heaven two tickets or whatever. But yeah, go to other side of heavenmovie.com. It'll list the theaters where it's showing near you. It should it it should be within ten to fifteen miles of just about everybody. Yeah. Um but some people will have to drive an hour maybe to see it. Um it's worth it. But for those of us who complain about 
Why isn't there more good, uplifting entertainment for my family? Here it is. Here's well, your chance. Yeah, it is. It is here. And I, I got to say, the test screenings we have done of this movie, um, uh, have it's it has tested off the charts. It's better than any movie I've ever done in terms of the test audience scores uh, by a significant margin. It's PG-13. Uh, no parents should be scared off by that. Um, it's rated PG-13 because of one scene in which a Mormon missionary gets beat up, beaten up by his drunk uncle, who's angry that he became a Mormon missionary. And it's a true story scene. Uh, and it's 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 nothing you wouldn't see on primetime TV. But, but it was enough that the MPAA said, you know, we, we need to put that rating on there. But it, it's... It's a squeaky clean movie, not a single foul word, no temptation or nudity or sexuality of any kind. It's a, it's it's just a beautiful, inspiring film. Well, I'm very uh, excited to see it. And I think your life, Mitch, has just been awesome and fascinating. And what a great thing to bring it all here. And I, we wish you nothing but the best on this film. Sean Rapier, uh You've been listening to me for way too long, way too long. <laughs> Thank you for your time. I've enjoyed every minute of it. To our audience, go see the film. And Mitch, we are going to wind things up so you can get a few minutes of sleep before this crazy, crazy week. We're going to finish up with the question we ask all of our guests. And that is, Mitch, what does being a member of the church mean to you? It means just about everything good in my life. Yesterday, I went to the Payson Temple to watch the sealing of the daughter of the first person I baptized on my mission in Argentina in 1977 was the year I baptized Estela Orejana, and she's now Estela Chaparro Orejana, living in Spanish Fork with her great husband. She has three kids, a handful of grandkids. I had no idea she was in Utah. And through a chance occurrence, ran into a bank teller in Provo a few months ago who knew somebody in Argentina who knew somebody who knew that she had moved here. And we reconnected. And I haven't, I've been so busy with the movie, I haven't been able to see her just to email and talk on the phone once or twice and say, yeah, after the movie's over, we'll get together. Well, her daughter got married. She said, you're invited to the temple. You probably can't come, but if you can come, we'd love to see you. So I walk into the Payson Temple and I see this dear woman. The last time I saw her, she was 17. We were in a font in La Banda, Argentina. Her husband noticed me and kind of waved me over and poked her arm. and She turned around, and the three of us just held each other and wept. I got so emotional that her husband was trying to comfort me. <laughs> uh, and like a great Argentine, he kissed me on the cheek three times, and we just held each other because it was just so sweet and beautiful to... And her children, you know, they walked up to me. They'd never seen me before, and they just said, thank you. Thank you for everything. Mm. And 
does it just does not get really any better than that and um and yeah so i left the temple just thinking hurrah for israel um yeah we're pals forever now awesome yeah the film is The Other Side of Heaven 2. It is out in theaters near you. Please go see this movie. Support this incredible adventure. I'm super excited to see it myself. My guest has been Mitch Davis. He is a writer, a filmmaker, and definitely a blessed child of God, bringing uh, the world his word. And uh, Mitch, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. If I were Eeyore, I would say thanks for noticing me. <laughs> thanks for having me, Sean. Thank you. All right. My special thanks to Mitch Davis for coming in and spending this time and telling his just absolutely amazing life story. Once again, please support this film. The Other Side of Heaven 2 is in theaters now. Uh, The reviews have been amazing, and our family is really excited to get out and see it. We hope you will too. This week in my Latter-day life uh, got me thinking a little bit just about what kind of faith it takes to hear the voice of the Lord say, hey, you're going to make a movie about a mission experience, and then to get out there and just do it. I was so impressed with Mitch. I would never, ever compare myself to Mitch in any way. The way he made this big-scale film is incredible. But I did have my own experience about two years ago. In fact, in two weeks, it'll be exactly two years ago, that I woke up on a Saturday morning, and the Spirit said to me, you are starting a podcast. (laughs) And uh, that was pretty daunting for me. Again, nothing like a movie, not at all. But uh, I had no idea how to do a podcast, how they worked. I called my friend Sean Lords, host of the Word on the Main Street podcast, and said, I think I'm supposed to do a podcast. What do I need to buy? How does it work? That week, I bought all of the equipment. I registered a name. I learned how to put up a podcast. I I just did all these things not knowing what was going to happen. In fact, I think the The first week, we probably had 25 people who listened to it total. It was just, it was kind of scary just putting it all out there. And here we are at episode number 95. We now have thousands of listeners every week all around the world who hear our incredible guests. And I've made so many people I consider now to be close friends. It's a very intimate thing to be able to sit and have these conversations about people's lives. It's just amazing. And I've become such good friends with so many of you, our listeners, who send such encouraging words that I appreciate so much. So for Mitch, it was this big thing to go out and make a movie. For me, it was, you know, just, hey, go start a podcast. And as I've listened to our guests, one common theme is I felt I needed to write a book. I felt I needed to start this website, this project. I felt I needed to paint this. I needed to get the message out this way. So many of our guests share the gospel, some in big ways, some in small ways. I have friends who the way that they share the gospel is through cookies. (laughs) They make incredible cookies and they deliver them to those who need to pick me up. It's just amazing. The question is, what's your way? Each of us has our own way. It's maybe not a podcast, though I do have a lot of friends who have podcasts with uplifting content, and maybe it's not a big movie the way that Mitch Davis makes them. 
but what is your way? Each of us has been given these gifts. And when I think about building the kingdom, that's the phrase I always use. People say, do you have sponsors? Do you have advertisers? Why do you do this? No. One reason. Build the kingdom. And much like when you're building a, a home, you've got lots of different disciplines. You've got people who do roofing, people who do framing, people who do carpet. We all build the kingdom in our own way. For Mitch, it's a movie. For me, it's a podcast. I think each one of us should challenge ourselves. What am I doing this week to build the kingdom? And we should get out there and do it. I'm grateful for Mitch's example and so thankful for all of my guests who come on this show and tell us what they do to build up our amazing kingdom. What a great time to be alive. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We so appreciate it. If you'd like to, please follow us on social media. That's where we announce our guests. And until next week, when we have another fantastic guest for you, please remember, as always, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.